Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? John Adams said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of the fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense. The habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Well, here we are, the very first episode of Timeless Leadership. The concept behind the show here is to take principles that we know to have worked throughout the course of history and, of course, uh, literature, wherever we see leaders represented. And to me, understanding the past is the key to getting to the future. Uh, Daniel Borston, the former librarian of Congress, said trying to plan for the future without a sense of the past is like trying to plant cut flowers. And just by way of example, to understand that it, it doesn't take until you're old and gray to become a true leader. Thomas Jefferson, when he was tasked with writing the Declaration of Independence, was only 33 years old. And he was in Philadelphia. He was away from his wife and child. And according to John Adams, the object was not to find out uh, new principles or new arguments, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and so firm as to command their assent, neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, nor yet copied from any previous writing. And I think that's the same kind of thing we're doing here. We're looking at leadership traits that aren't new, but that are profound nonetheless. We'll be looking at people who are leading in their own lives in one or more of these principles. And so it is my great pleasure to bring on my very first guest, and I'll ask her to unmute her microphone as soon as I read her introduction. Have you ever felt stuck? That there's more for you to achieve, more to your ever-unfolding story, but you're just not sure how to get there? Well, then you've come to the right place, because Laura Gassner-Otting helps people do just that. She's the author of the new book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life, which debuted as number two in the Washington Post bestseller list, right behind Michelle Obama. Laura is a serial entrepreneur who has started and sold a successful international executive search firm, built philanthropic and political action committees from scratch, and was a White House appointee on the team which created the National Service Project, AmeriCorps. Laura is like a punch in the face, wrapped in a warm hug. Please join me in welcoming to the stage author, lightweight champion of the get-the-hell-out-of-your-own-way world, 
competitive rower, and professional badass, Laura Gassner-Otting. Hey, Scott. Hey, ho, LGO. This is very exciting. Your first ever show, your podcast, your fireside chat. What do we call this? Are you with me, Scott? I am here. Maybe this is just me. It's a solo show. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I am an idiot. This is this is this is how we we work the kinks out in the very first episode. So thank you. <laughs> I mean, if, if if those are your kinks, I think you're doing all right. Oh, did the intro come through at least? Yeah, the intro came through. It was really loud at first, but then when you got rid of the the voice bot, the wait bot, oh yeah, it, it was Good perfect. Lord. That that wait bot, he does my job for me. You know, I I, I like coming with you know produced material. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those perfectionists. <laughs> you know the type. Oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, meanwhile, I'm sitting here thinking, how do I lower my voice and my tenor and my cadence so that I'm not the crazy, spastic, moxie-driven nutball that I am and I, like, match your vibe? No, I'm trying no, very no, hard. No. This, this, is why, <laughs> this is why you're here. You're the yin to my yang. You know, you're, you're the you're the dope slap I need every now and again. There you go. I'll be the straight tie to your bow tie. The- <laughs> Perfect. Well, hey, this inaugural episode, we're talking about luck. And, and what I try to do is track to some of the topics I've talked about in the Timeless and Timely newsletter. And you've written uh, extensively about how people can kind of reposition themselves how they can rethink their own uh, career, their own purpose in life. I mean, there, there's a number of things in your book, Limitless. So in that spirit, and, and I, and I want to explore exactly what limitless means and, and particularly uh, consonants, but let, let's talk first about how you got to be in the White House because that seems to me like the ultimate stroke of luck. <laughs> well... It's sort of a funny story because, yeah, of course, I got super lucky, right? But when you go back and you look at how it all happened, it's like, hmm, maybe she did some things that were smart that got her in the right place with the right people so that when the opportunity came along, she just happened to be the person standing there, right? I think a lot of times what we think of as luck is just proximity, and preparation in advance. So um, I had uh, graduated early from college. I had started law school early. So I was 20 years old when I started law school. And I realized fairly quickly that I did not want to be there, that my entire plan since I was in fourth grade, when I had a teacher who said, you know, you're pretty argumentative, Laura, you'd make a good lawyer. And I was like, well, first of all, you're wrong, because of course I'm argumentative. But second of all, hmm, that sounds interesting. It's like back in the days of like L.A. Law and all of those legal eagle shows, and it seemed glamorous. And I was like, yeah, that seems to make sense. And all the people who were, quote unquote, leaders were politicians. They were in office. They were making changes. They were you know, changing the world. And at the time, they were all lawyers. So I was like, well, that seems like a pretty good plan. I'm going to do that. So I set off on this plan to get me to law school without really second thinking whether or not it was the place for me. And I ended up there and realized very quickly it was not where I wanted to be. I didn't really respect the the, the classmates that I have or the teachers that were there or the way that they were teaching classes. By the way, I happened to be the very first person on the very first day who was called upon to go like 20 questions deep on Gideon versus Wainwright. And 
I, I, I was the example that was made. So clearly I did not have an enjoyable experience. So I did what anybody would do in a moment of time when you're, you know, pretty much self-hating is that I started dating a guy who was absolutely terrible for me. But that guy, I like to say, had really good taste in precisely two things. The first being girlfriends, obviously. And the second (laughs) being unknown presidential hopefuls from tiny towns in Arkansas called Hope. And he dragged me one day to a campaign office where there was a tiny TV in the corner of the room. And then Governor Bill Clinton gave this impassioned talk about how there's nothing that's wrong with America that can't be what's fixed with what's right with America. And he offered as a policy solution service, mm. national service in exchange for college tuition. And in that moment, it was like lightning bolt. Boom. This needs to happen. So I started volunteering on the campaign. Just a few weeks later, all four principals, Bill and Hill and Tipper and Al, came through Gainesville, Florida, and we got 36,000 people to show up at, at a rally from this you know, tiny podunk college town. And the national campaign office noticed, and they offered me a job where I was paid all the ramen soup and idealism I could eat. And I dropped out of law school and joined the campaign. And I met people along the way in the campaign who then ended up in positions on the transition team, and then eventually in the White House, that where they were calling volunteers on day one. And I happened to have made random friends with them in like nickel beer and wing nights, you know, in tiny towns before we put on these huge rallies. So it seems like this sort of crazy, lucky path that I happened to be in the right place at the right time. But there were things as I look back on it, I can track back and say, I noticed this idea. I heard this person speak. I jumped on this opportunity. I opened myself up to potential. But all to say, you know, you also have to have that crazy timing. That is, that is, well, you know, you, you mentioned smart versus proximity or smart and proximity, some kind of combination of the two. But I, I think there's really a third factor there that you've, you've just kind of indicated. Uh, you know, you, you need to have some sort of, well, I don't know, moxie, ambition, drive. Um, you need to do something <laughs> with your smarts in your proximity. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I ended up on the Today Show and Good Morning America after my book came out. The way that I got to Good Morning America is because I happened to speak at an event where Robin Roberts was the, the you know, the, the, the last speaker of the day. I didn't actually meet her, but I had been doing a good enough job at the previous events for the MC, making his life really easy. That when I said to him before I left, I'm so sad. I'm not going to meet Robin. She's one of my sheroes and ha ha ha. I should, you know, I think she'd love my book and ha ha. I should, I should be on Good Morning America. And he said, you know what? You're right. You should. And he hands me one of my own books and he says, here, sign this for her. Make it really good and personal. And I'll make sure she gets it. And I did. And he did. And she read it and loved it and invited me to the show. But the reason I was speaking on that stage in the first place is because our mutual friend, Mitch Joel, who I see is listening here, um, invited me to come to the, that event the previous year. And unbeknownst to me, he just didn't want to, he didn't want to just hang out. He thought that I would be a good speaker for this event the next year and introduced me to the person who ran the event. And basically what he was saying is, look, I've made this introduction. I told him who you are, finish your book, publish it, make it good, keep the relationship with him and then be really good and get on his stage. So 
it was, you know, it, it's luck that I met Mitch, but it was effort to create the relationship with him and also to make sure that once he introduced me to the person who could, you know, open the door for me, I had to be good. I had to actually do the work and right. show up because A, I needed to be worthy of, you know, his faith in me. And also, you know, you can't like just walking in the door, that doesn't last. Right. So the way that you create the relationship, which leads to more luck, right? You have the luck that leads to more luck, that leads to more luck. There's an awful lot of work that goes into that also along the way. Mm. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you can look back and ascribe half of this stuff to luck, but it really is about preparation and, it's about the actions you're taking as a result. Um, and, and I, I don't think there's any substitute for that, but, but at the same time, um, let's, let's flip the script a little bit. Let's talk about bad luck or, or what we think of as bad luck or as superstition, um, or misfortune, right? Uh, Ambrose Bierce said, uh, misfortune. He, he, in his devil's dictionary, he, he defined misfortune as the kind of fortune that never misses. <laughs> <laughs> um, wh- what about people who feel as if they're constantly plagued with bad luck or that nothing good ever happens to them? I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've heard people kind of bemoan that before. W- what's your reaction to that? Absolutely. So, so in the writing for my next book, um, I am – actually going to do a whole chapter on luck because I'm fascinated by this idea. Like I've had so many people say to me, oh, well, you just have that LGO magic. You just have LGO luck. Like things just work out. But I don't know that things just work out for anyone. You know, my sister's name is Karen and uh, she is one of those people for whom it seems it seems like things always work. Like she, you know, happens to like walk up to the counter and, oh, they just got a cancellation. Or, you know, here, we just got a new stock, whatever it is. Like it just, we joke around that it's like, here comes Karen. It's like the the waves, just like the, the seas open and she can walk through. But, you know, the truth is she's, you know, she is, she is very good at being aggressive and asking for what she wants. So yeah, the, the restaurant just happens that thing. You can't get a reservation. That just happens to have a reservation the day she calls, but it's because she stays on the phone with the person. She asks more questions. She helps create an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think people who have bad luck don't do that. They sort of settle for the way the world is presented to them, period, end of story. Now, obviously, there's a huge amount of privilege that plays a right. role in this also, like having, you know, access and having education and having the, um, the freedom to be able to say, yeah, I'll get on a plane and go up to that event with you, Mitch. Why not? And, and be able to like change my schedule around. There's a ton of, of privilege that comes with the, 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 the ability to sort of pounce when, you know, when, when, when the opportunity strikes. But you have to also notice when the opportunity strikes. And I think, you know, what I've read about luck is that you can become a luckier person if you do certain things. So, Extroverts are luckier than introverts. Um, people who are optimistic are luckier than pessimists. People who are open-minded and interested in trying new things are luckier than people who are closed-minded who don't do new things. But what I thought was the most interesting is that you can actually fake these things. So I am a neurotic, closed-minded introvert deep in my soul. However, I also understand that staying in my living room and just writing my chapter I could write the greatest book in the world, but if I'm not actually out there meeting people and being, you know, in quote unquote, the deal flow, 
nobody's going to read my book because nobody's going to hear about my book. So nobody's going to buy my book. So there are things you have to do. So even if you are somebody who isn't extroverted or, you know, naturally open-minded, or if you're super anxious and neurotic, you can have brief moments of time of brilliance of faking these things with intention. So you're not just going out there and going, I'm going to go to this event and I'm going to work the room and talk to every single person here, but you do some homework and you say, who is going to be there? What are the things that I want to accomplish there? Are there three particular people and what is my goal? My goal isn't to pitch them on my idea or to sell them my book or to get them to put me on their show. My only goal is to get them to just agree to have the next meeting with me, the next conversation. So you can fake introversion or extroversion. You can fake optimism. You can fake willingness, but you just set the bar super, super, super low. And as you do it, you will find that it becomes, you know, it's almost momentum building because each of these things give you more energy. You see that they start to work. You start to notice that you're getting more opportunities. You're starting to get luckier. You can do these things. But if you're somebody who looks at this and says, well, I set a goal for three and I only talk to two people, clearly I'm a failure. Misfortune follows me everywhere I go. Then you see that as finite. That's like the fixed mindset versus growth mindset that uh, that that uh, that that uh, Carol Dweck talks about. If you are somebody who is not going to take lessons from the failures or from the quote unquote misfortunes, then of course you will have the same problems again because you're just you're not learning and you're not growing. But if we start to see failure as fulcrum and not as finale, then it becomes something that we not only see as possible but probable, and we actually look forward to it because we know that it's okay. And it's a place that's going to make us better for the next time. Mm. That is fantastic. I love that. And, and, you know, powering through and, and, you know, kind of repeating, not making the same mistakes that there right there is the difference between persistence and resilience, right? Persistence is just doing the same thing over and over again. And, and resilience is really learning from your mistake, digging down deep for some kind of inner strength and recasting the net for the next time. Absolutely. So in, as you know, I spent 20 years doing executive search and I was the CEO of my own company for 15 of those years. So by the time candidates came to me, my, my team had interviewed them. They were qualified for the job. You know, they had the, the years of experience, the background, the, the, the you know, uh, P&L responsibility, all of those things. But I had to make sure they were going to be a fit with my client. And I never really looked for book smarts or education or or any of those things. Again, I knew that those things had already been tested. I looked for five specific quality traits. I looked for hunger, weight, tenacity, speed, and grit. So hunger. How serious of a person are they? Can I put them in front of my best client? Um, can I have them negotiate my biggest deal? Um, hunger. How... Uh, uh, sorry, I think I did wait first. So wait, how serious are they? Hunger. How much do they want this? Like, are they, you can't be insatiably hungry for somebody else's goal. So is this something that they want in a way that's going to make them show up as the very best version of themselves every single day? Tenacity. Just how many times are they willing to like get back up and try and go and try and go and try and go? Speed. How fast is it from failure to fix? And then grit. Just how tough are they? Like, when will they fold 
along the way? And will they be able to get us through this really difficult period? So hunger, weight, tenacity, speed, and grit. And I think we see all of those things. You cannot get lucky if you're not hungry for the thing you want, because you're not going to just do the extra thing. We know like scientifically proven all the way back from 1500 BC, we see, uh, tr- we, we see, uh, um, uh, history, we see evidence of lucky charms, talismans, something that people hold in their hands. Just the, the thought that things are going to work out for you makes you want to try just a little bit harder, makes you want to go back a little bit more. So it makes you, you know, you, you can be hungrier for those bigger goals. You can be more serious about them, not worry about anything else around you. You can be more tenacious. You can be, you can look at the failure and go from failure to fix, failure to fix without worrying about it. And you can know that in the grittiest, hardest moments, you will get through it because you have already decided that you're somebody for whom this thing might work out because you happen to have this lucky charm. Whatever that mindset is, that's the thing that says to somebody, well, I'll just do the extra lap. I'll try the extra rep. I'll, you know, stay a couple hours later. I'll get in a little bit earlier. I'll make that extra client call. Whatever the thing is, just this idea that you can it will, it's going to work out, makes people luckier. I think that's so important, just setting the mindset. In case you're just joining us, uh, I am here with author Laura Gassner-Otting, who is uh, speaking on the topic of luck. Her book is Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. Um we we mentioned before, Laura, you, you passed by it, and I, I want to go back to it, um, this sense of uh, privilege and, and how there are automatic advantages baked in for some people uh, where we, uh, we just, it's human to assume that the world looks as we look at it, that everyone has that same perspective, and yet we don't. We know we don't. There are some people who are, uh, born very fortunately, there are some that are in very difficult circumstances. What what do you say to someone, or what's your approach with respect to luck and and you know kind of having this resilient can-do attitude when someone is greeted with less than ideal um, origins or a, a place to begin? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I I want to just state. Just right out there that I am a, you know, cisgendered straight white woman, uh, who has been happily married to the same man for almost 25 years. I have two healthy children. I have a master's degree. I grew up in a family, uh, where my parents were, you know, remain married. They are still married. So I have a huge amount of privilege. But there have been moments and forks in the road where I've had to make some decisions. So for example, when I dropped out of law school, to join that presidential campaign and decided I wasn't going back. I was going to put my car on the auto train and I was going to move to DC sight unseen. Didn't know anybody. Um, didn't, you know, didn't, uh, have any money in my bank. I mean, I was, I was taking a huge risk. My parents said to me, look, we'll give you six months of rent, which is, you know, incredible. My parents are not generally speaking, flexible humans. Um, and this was definitely not a, a decision that they wanted their daughter to be making. Um, but they said, we'll give you six months of rent. And if you haven't found a paying job in six months, you're coming back and you're finishing law school. So of course, I was wildly um, incentivized to figure it out. But 
I wasn't, I couldn't like, I still needed to eat, right. I still needed to, 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 to be able to go out and do things and meet people. So I had to make decisions. Am I going to live in the nicer apartment? That's going to, that six months of what they gave me was really only going to pay for three months. Or am I going to live in a disgusting, dirty basement apartment in, in back then what was not funky Adams Morgan, but funky Adams Morgan, um, with the roaches and the mice and a, a random roommate who I literally found, uh, on a pull tab hanging from the Safeway <laughs> grocery store. And, that will help me to make my money last longer in case this doesn't work out or in case I don't get the job that pays me enough that could actually afford to, to be here. So you, yeah, I think everyone has to make decisions along the way. So if you have tons of privilege, if you have no privilege, we, there are still moments when you say, okay, there are a couple of numbers I need to think about. I need to think about my need to make number, right? What is the number that I need to make so that I can pay my bills and not create a huge amount of stress on everybody and everything around me? And then there's the what's my want to make number? What's what is the thing that I you know, where do I want to go? Do I want to take vacations? Do I want to be philanthropic? Um, do you know how, how do I want to spend my, you know, quote unquote hobby money? I think the need to make number and the want to make number are really good numbers to have in mind as you're thinking about what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? What is my next move? And if you think about that, it allows you to say, well, I have a certain amount of privilege that gives me this number. And I can make that. And then from there, where do I go? Right. Who are the people that I need to talk to? How can I get to them? And are there ways where I could use what I see as, you know, a lack of privilege to help me? So are there programs that are created to um, empower people who fit into whatever demographic I'm in? Are there clubs of people who are only whatever demographic I'm in where I can network in a smaller world? So I think that there are ways to use this, but I think using lack of privilege as an excuse not to fake getting lucky, not to fake the things that you need to do in order to move forward in the world. I think that that's, I think that that's probably selling yourself short. Hmm. Well, you've written about the fake it till you make it principle in your book. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it means to you? Sure. So when I say fake being lucky, um, fake what you need to do to be lucky. I'm not saying fake it till you make it. Um, this is not that like brotastic hustle porn type of like, oh, rise and grind, man. So, you know, you know, just lean in and you got to just like hustle harder. I think that stuff is nonsense. And frankly, it's I can't decide if it's scammy or scummy, but it's definitely one of the two. And neither one of them would be that good. <laughs> would be that good. So. When I got to the White House, I was all of 21 years old. And I, you know, I, as I mentioned, I just dropped out of law school. I was, um, I went to University of Texas. So, you know, a good school, but not like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Wesleyan, Haverford, you know, whatever, like the, you know, tiny liberal arts schools that need to go from prep school to that or the, or, or, or the Ivy League schools. And it was very clear to me that I did not belong. Like everybody else is walking in and they have their, you know, fancy attache cases and they're wearing clothing that actually, you know, was bought in the century. And I was literally wearing my mother's hand-me-down suits. So I'm like walking in with my Alexis Carrington dynasty um, uh, shoulder pads. In fact, when Biden was sworn in, there was a news story that said that he is using the drapes and the uh, the carpet from 
Bill Clinton's Oval Office. And I was like, hey, look, kids. And I went to my office and I grabbed a photo off the wall of me, like standing in the Oval Office with him. And all my kids could do is be like, mom, what are you wearing? That's <laughs> terrible. So I was definitely faking it. And I would, I would walk in in the morning and everyone else was, was on salary and I was still volunteering, right? Like I was like there, but for the grace of God, go I. Like if nobody's going to find me out, I'm just going to like lay low. And we would get in the morning. We had like a morning sprint, uh, morning sprint staff meeting. And we get in in the morning and uh, all of these pretty young things, these bright young things were sitting there with their like dog-eared New York Times and their dog-eared uh, Wall Street journals and their Washington Post and they're like highlighting and writing notes furiously in pads and, and, you know, in front of them. And I'm sitting there looking at all of them like they have all these ideas. I have no ideas. What are they writing about? I had no idea. So I would just like mm. pretend to write stuff and I would literally like write letters to friends. Like I had no, this is like before the internet kids. So like I had no idea, but I was like, I've got to write something or people are going to think I'm just like a mouth breather sitting here. So I would write and I'd write and I'd write. And here's what happened. I was so busy faking it that I didn't actually learn what it would take to make it. I didn't notice what other people were doing. I wasn't listening to the conversations around me. I wasn't watching how deals were being made. I wasn't listening to the questions that were being asked or like watching how people positioned themselves, even sitting at the actual table. I was so busy trying to fake it that I didn't, A, learn if the thing I was trying to make it was something I even wanted to do, and B, I didn't even understand what it was I was supposed to do. So fake it till you make it, I think, is such bad advice for people because it doesn't actually help you get there. And then even if you do get there, you've been so busy faking it that you don't even know how to, how to persist and how to stay and how to get better at the thing that you're doing. And it just sets, it's like an addiction almost off this, this, this cycle of like, you just have to keep faking it and keep faking it and keep faking it. And then you like, you never know. And then, you know, people are like, Oh, well you just have imposter syndrome as if there's something wrong with you. Right? Like, I love imposter syndrome. I think imposter syndrome is great because it means that you've pushed yourself somewhere that you didn't know if you could get to. Yeah. Awesome. Like, let's turn that governor in your head into a into a cheerleader saying, like, good for you. You got there. And if at that time I had allowed myself to have a cheerleader saying, good for you. You got here. Like someone decided you were worthy of being here. Awesome. Take up space. Trop, stop trying to fake it and just invest in the relationships and the people around you. And you'll figure it out so much faster. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. And, I mean, did you, you know, feel that way when you got to Ford and you're like looking around and you're like, Oh my God, I'm in, the, it's the big show. Like, did you feel like what of like people are going to figure me out? They're going to realize I don't know what I'm doing. Or were you pretty confident? Uh, a little of each, you know, interestingly, it was only after I left Ford that I completely lost confidence. I didn't have the big corporation behind me. I didn't have, I wasn't working with a net yes. anymore. Yes. And, and, and to me, that was huge, right? Knowing that I had the backing of a team, knowing that I had budgets to work with, knowing that I could fail um, and, and still be okay because it was a culture that allowed that. And that's rare. But there's a lot of people that give lip service to that. And then you get dinged for failing. Yes. You know, I felt like I was incredibly lucky to have fallen into that job. Um, and, and like you, I obviously had prepared myself and made decisions along the way, proximity, and et cetera. Um, but looking back, you know, it just looks like a stroke of genius. And yes. Isn't it funny that, you know, we ascribe uh, genius to those who are simply fortunate or lucky? Yes. <laughs> you know, it, 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 I was just the right guy in the right place at the right time. So, um, but, you know, with, with imposter syndrome, what I've come to realize 
is that the only people who don't suffer from imposter syndrome are the actual imposters. Yes. Yes. The Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I have always been worried about people who don't have imposter syndrome. But the good news is, is that studies show that 70% of us have imposter syndrome. Mm. The problem is that nobody talks about it publicly. So we get this, um, uh, we, we, we get a bit, we get ourselves in a bit of trouble and we feel completely alone because like, God forbid we admit to anybody, like if you have imposter syndrome, then you admit to somebody that you have imposter syndrome while you feel even worse, right? So we live in this world of like pluralistic ignorance where each of us doubts ourselves privately, but we ascribe to everyone else that they must know what they're doing. So we feel even more alone because no one else will admit to us they don't know what they're doing. So I am, I mean, I'm like, hi, my name is Laura and I'm a total imposter, but I, I am proud of being an imposter. And in fact, as I'm interviewing people for this next book, what I'm realizing is that every single person who has achieved any kind of success, whether it is running a you know hundred million dollar company or running a hundred you know dollar profit line for a you know a, a you know selling makeup out of your living room or something, each one of them, every time you get to that next plateau, you look around and you're like, holy buckets. I did not expect to be here. I wonder what the next plateau looks like and the next plateau looks like. And there are people who will say, cool, like, let's see. Like, this is exciting. Right. I can't wait. And there are people that go, oh, no, this can't be me. And then they start self-sabotaging. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, no matter what level we get to in our lives, whether it's parenthood or an executive level or founding a new company, there's not a handbook for success. Oh, they didn't give you a handbook for parenting? I, I got one. You, oh, man. I, I must have <laughs> skipped that day. I was playing hooky. Um, oh, man. And, and, and you look at your kids like, you know, you're supposed to be an authority figure and, and teaching them how to survive on their own in the world. That's our job as parents. Meanwhile, we're all just making it up as we go <laughs> Right. I mean, if they only knew, right? Yes. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I would hear my parents giving me the lectures and I'm like, did they have to like read this and memorize it? I mean, where does it come from? Because I feel the same way as, as as the words are rolling off my tongue in front of my kids. I'm like, I have no idea what the next sentence is going to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's talk about not having a net. I remember there was a moment when I had brought my kids. Actually, we were in New York City and I brought my kids to the Museum of Natural History. And we were walking around and I was like, look, kids, the Mastodon. And I started reading to them about, you know, I was just like telling them all the things about this Mastodon. I was just reading the plaque. And my younger kid looked at me and he was like, you're so smart. How do you know that? And I was like, Oh, my parents didn't know anything either. <laughs> they were just reading off the plaque. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm the one over in London going, look, kids, Parliament, Big Ben. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're here with Laura Gassner Otting, author of Limitless, How to Ignore Everyone, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life. We're talking about luck, and it, it seems odd that I would pick someone who is limitless to talk about luck, but um, I'd, I'd like to delve into this a little bit with you specifically around the concept of consonants, because I think this is where we see the uh, the great intersection with yes. luck. Can you explain consonants and, and what that means? Yes. So Limitless, my book, as Scott mentioned, um, is 
it, it is based on a question that plagued me for 20 years of executive search work, where I was being paid by my clients to find the most successful people on the face of the earth and recruit them away to go work for them. And it would seem like a super daunting task, find the most successful people on the planet and try to convince them to leave their jobs. Except despite all this, this success, they weren't all very happy. So I was asked to call the most successful people on the planet, but they all took my calls because they thought that happiness was like the next job, the next promotion, the next raise, the next organization, the next mission away. And I was plagued by this idea. I was intrigued by this idea about why success didn't equal happiness. We're all told by our parents who are clearly reading the plaque at the Mastodon exhibit. That's like if you follow the scorecard, if you go to law school, if you get the big job, if you, you know, if you just lean in, right, if you if you follow all these all these uh, checkboxes on everyone else's path to everyone else's success, voila, you will be successful. And I did that. So after I left the White House, I went into a career of executive search and I became the youngest vice president at the marquee firm that did specifically the type of executive search I was doing, which was in universities, mission-driven organizations, nonprofits, advocacy groups. And I became, I was successful. I was good at the work. I'm a, you know, I'm a Jewish mother, I'm a professional Yenten matchmaker. It was, I was, it was a match made in heaven. It was a perfect job for me. And I became the youngest vice president at this firm. And I remember one day sitting there, staring out across the table, right over my client, like basically staring through my clients right over the heads at the beautiful park view that I had and thinking, I'm going to make my, I'm going to make my numbers this quarter. This is good. This is good. My boss is going to be really happy. This is, I'm going to make the numbers. Except I didn't because my clients could tell that I wasn't thinking about them. I was thinking about the PL statement that was sitting in between me and them. They were thinking, we're going to cure cancer. We're going to solve childhood hunger. We're going to you know, get people out of poverty. And I was thinking, I'm going to make my quarterly numbers. I had gone into the work because I wanted to cure cancer. I wanted to solve hunger. I wanted to deal with economic disparities. But I got distracted by my boss's definition of success. Just like my teacher in the fourth grade who told me to go to law school, that was her definition of success. My, my parents had a certain definition of success. My, my boss had a certain definition of success, but none of them were mine. And they were creating this dissonance in me that felt a bit like organ rejection. Like I just, I was so hard for me to get excited about, about, about the work that I was doing because I was chasing someone else's definition, that number, the PNL number on the spreadsheet, and I wasn't helping my clients succeed. And so I went into my boss's office and I was like, you know, there's a better way to do this work. And I outlined a different business model. And he said, basically, I was like, here's the new way. And he was like, there's the door. And, you know, it was either you could stay and do things our way or you can leave and do things your way. And it was in that moment that I realized that I I was not part of the solution, which left me in only one place, which is that I was part of the problem. And so I left and I started my own firm. And this was the beginning of my own journey of understanding consonants. It was me being able to do the work that mattered to me, solving the problems that I cared about, doing the very best of what I could do with the skills and talents that I that I had to solve a problem that I wanted to solve and I could be rewarded for in a way that actually meant something to me. I wanted my mission, my clients' missions to be first. I knew our profits would follow. 
and it worked. We were super successful because I, you know, I was in consonance and I created a firm that was based on that. It employed people that came based on theirs. And so as I, I came to sell that firm 15 years later, I began to think about what it was, why this worked so well for me. And I started to think about the handful of people that I actually wasn't able to recruit away. And I realized that they too had consonants. They had this, what they did matched who they were in a way where they weren't, they didn't have the exhaustion from going back and forth between who they were at work and who they were at home. They weren't just like looking for work-life balance. They had work-life alignment. They weren't thinking, I'll be happy when. I get the next job, the next promotion, the next raise, but they were focused on being happy now. And most importantly, they weren't just following their passion. They were investing in their passion. They were working hard for the thing that they cared about. And they didn't worry about failing because they knew, as you mentioned, failure is fulcrum and not finale. And so I started to think about the four things um, that made up my picture of consonants and what I see make up the thousands of pictures of consonants from the thousands of leaders that I've interviewed over the course of 20 years. And I'll just go through each of them quickly and then we can dig into them as you want. Sure. The first is calling. Calling is the thing that gets you up in the morning. It's, it's what you're excited to do. It's a business you want to build, a bottom line you want to grow, a leader you want to serve, a calling that inspires you, a family you want to nurture. The second is connection. And connection answers the question, does your work even matter? Like, would anybody care if you didn't show up to work today? Can you see a direct connection between the work that you're doing on a daily basis and the calling that you want to serve? The third piece is contribution. So connection is all about you. Contribution really answers the question of, how does this work contribute to my life? Does it pay me a salary that gives me the lifestyle that I want? Is it giving me the opportunity to put me in a, on a career trajectory that I need? Is it allowing me to manifest my values on a daily basis? How is this work contributing to the life that I want to create? And then the last piece is calling. Or sorry, last piece is control. Um, and control is how much personal agency do you actually have about whether or not your work connects to that calling? Or, or contributes to the life in the way that you want. Can you decide what teams you're, you're on, how your hustle pays you, know, you dividends, how much you work, how hard you work, who you work with, where you work? Um, do you have say in the company's you know, policies that affect you? All of those things are your own personal version of control. And each one of us will want and need calling, connection, contribution, and control in different amounts from each other. So my definition won't look like yours, Scott, but your definition will also be different today than it was 10 years ago or will be 10 years from now. And so we have to allow ourselves the grace, not just to be the person that your fourth grade teacher tells you you're going to be, but actually be the person who you want to be at every age and at every life stage. I think that's wonderful, Laura. That's that's just such a profound way of thinking about it and simplified into uh, those four C's. I love it when we can get... Uh, on a poetic about it. <laughs> yeah, I joke around that I'm like, I, well, I thought I wrote a business book, right? I thought this was all about, you know, how do you use your career to you know, change your career and change your life? And what I realized is that it's a personal development book, which when I first realized that I sort of had this horror moment, like, oh my God, I'm a self-helper. <laughs> then I realized that actually all business books are self-help books also. Like you, I'm bringing the help, but people really need to bring the self. They need to show up with the self where it doesn't actually work. So I was like, well, I guess they're all going to start with the same letter, calling, connection, contribution, control to yeah. give you consonants to go from, you know, confusion to clarity. <laughs> <laughs> there you yeah. Go. So self-helper in the house. 
Well, that's fantastic. So let's, I want to focus for just a moment on the fourth C of consonants, the control part, because in yes. so many ways, control seems like the opposite of luck. You know, when we say luck, we think of Dame Fortune and the spinning of the wheel and, you know, we get whatever is delivered to us. And I, I found a quote by Arthur Schopenhauer from 1851. He wrote an essay called The Wisdom of Life, right? He clearly had a healthy relationship with his ego. Um, he said, for the course of a man's life is in no way entirely of his own making. It's the product of two factors, the series of things that have happened and his own resolves in regard to them. And these two are constantly interacting upon and modifying each other. So with respect to control, you know, we know we can't control the world events around us. We can't control what other people think of us, even. So when when you think about control and its role in consonants, how does that play in? Well, you know, I I I believe very strongly that you cannot control anything that is around you, but you can control your reaction to everything that is around you. Mm-hmm. And that has given me huge solace in my life in politics. It has given me huge solace in my life in entrepreneurship. And it has given me huge solace in my life in the last year during the pandemic. I like, I can't control whether or not people wear masks. I can't control whether or not people spring break. Mm-hmm. I can't control whether or not people um, get vaccines or, or not. I can't control that, but I can control what I can do. And I spent probably the first couple months of the pandemic just having this massive, just in like great Gatsby style pity party. Like just, I mean, off the, we had champagne towers and everything in my, in my imagination. And, uh, you know, I, I got to a point and I think it was probably somewhere near like the end of the 10th contain the 10 bag, uh, 10 bag of Oreos where I, I realized that I was wrong. I had been blaming the fact that my speaking business had disappeared on COVID, right? Like there's no planes, there's no events, there's no stages. I'm a speaker. Oh, well, what am I going to do? And what I've realized um, after these two months and the, the end of the 10th um, bag of Oreos was that it's not the fault of people going on spring break and it's not the fault of people not wearing masks and it's not the fault of COVID. It's my fault. Like I was the problem because just because I'm a speaker doesn't mean that I, um, was that a mic drop? That was very fun. <laughs> like it, these, it was like a, it was like a high five and the uh, audio emoji reactions down on the bottom there. That is awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to say that again. It wasn't COVID's fault. It was my fault. I was the problem. So There we go. So I realized I had always, this is the meta moment, right? Like I wrote a book about no longer defining success in the way that it had been defined by everyone forever. And I was defining being a speaker in the way that it was defined by everyone forever. And what I realized was Mm. I can still speak, right? Like what is the problem that I want to solve? I want to help people get out of their own way and live the great life that they were put on this planet and meant to live. 
the one that they actually want to live, the one that they actually care about. Mm. So how do I do that? I do that by writing, by speaking, by, you know, getting in front of people and shaking them out of their, their, their comfort with mediocrity and forcing them to try new things and get a little uncomfortable so that they can get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that becomes the new way that they live. And what I realized was I had actually been defining speaker as only events and planes and stages, when in fact, I have a webcam, I have a microphone, I have an internet connection. Those stages of like 5,000 people, which were bucket list audiences before, now seem kind of small because there's no limit to the number of people that you can reach. And so I just started asking myself, what is the problem I want to solve in the world? What is the solution that I have that that problem actually needs? And what is the best medium through which to do it? given my circumstances today. And my response was, okay, well, the problems that I want to, you know, people feel like they can only live a life that other people are condoning as good enough. Number one, like that's horseshit. People shouldn't have to live like that. Number two, what is the solution I bring? I bring this rubric of consonants that's based on 20 years of interviewing thousands of leaders and massive moments of, you know, bowel shaking career disruption and number three, what is the best medium given what I have today? Well, I guess it's a webcam and an internet connection and awesome. Off to the races we went. I created a course. I, 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 you know, started going live every day to my Facebook community. I started doing, um, uh, enough stuff in front of the camera that I started doing media. I was on Good Morning America again. I did a lot of local media and I was able to control my situation because I decided that I just needed to go back again to like, what's my calling? What do I care about? How does that work that I can do on a daily basis connect to it? Um, am I still able to manifest my values during this time? It's not what do I want to accomplish, but who do I want to be? How do I want to be during this time? And it all came down to that last question of what can I control and what can't I control? And there's tons of things out there I can't control, but what I can control is showing every single day in front of my audience at 10 a.m. And I did it for months and months and months. And I ended up getting really comfortable, really good at doing online sessions where I was like looking at the count, the comment, uh, con, sorry, the comments while I was actually changing my content on the fly. And that then made me better at doing the actual speaking that I do, but it all came down to like asking myself that question of, you know, how much control do I need right now? And what can I actually control right now? Wow. That's, that's impressive. You are limitless, just like, you <laughs> um, and, and here is why I do an audio program and not a video program. Um, and and very first one. So thank you again for being here. We're speaking with Laura Gassner Otting, author of the book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. We're talking about luck, and we are happy to take questions from the audience. If you'd like to uh, join us here on stage, just hit uh, hit that plus button, I think, up next to uh, the speakers. I don't know if my layout is different from everyone else's, but if you'd like to be invited up to the stage, there will be a, a microphone that appears as a, an emoji over your profile there. Uh, we see we've got... Uh, Almost a couple dozen people listening here. Appreciate that. Early days here on the app, but we're having fun with it. So, um, Laura, you, you you mentioned you know really taking stock of yourself, digging deep down uh, at at the height of the pandemic here, um, and and going through the motions here. I, I got a text earlier from my friend Gary Cohen, who quoted another Gary, Gary Player, who said, "The more I practice, the luckier I get." 
Do you feel that resonates with you and your experience over the last year? Oh, 100%. 100%. And, you know, I wrote in Limitless about, you know, one of the things that we get wrong is, you know, say you went out to, to give a presentation in front of a big client, huge, huge client, huge presentation, big career moment for you. And 80% of it went pretty well. 10% of it went okay. And 10% of it was just terrible. Like you just, you got to, you got to do that better. So what do we do before the next big client, the next big event? What do we practice? We practice the 10% that went badly, right? But we never actually spend time asking ourselves, well, the 80% that went pretty well, did I get that right because I'm really good? Or did I just get lucky? And what happens is that we don't practice that stuff. So we always end up doing 80% pretty good, 10% okay, and 10% not great. But what's in those buckets constantly changes. So like take someone like Serena Williams, for example, right? Arguably the greatest athlete of all time in any sport. She doesn't just go out on the tennis court and practice the few handful of shots that didn't go well in the last game. She practices everything over and over and over again, even the stuff that she literally aces, right? Even her aces, she practices it over and over again, because then when it comes time, she doesn't just get lucky, right? Like, yeah, the more you practice, the luckier you get, but luck looks an awful lot like hard work. And it's often the hard work that you don't see in the dark, in the you know early mornings, in the late evenings, on the weekends, the stuff that's not glamorous, the stuff that, you know, people don't talk about. That's where you get lucky. It's by putting in the hours. That that is so true. It's it's like the the legend of the overnight success. They don't see the 10, 15 years you've put in doing stuff that no one sees right behind the scenes, grunt work. And then one day you hit it big for sure. For sure. You know, I as you know, I mean, I've told you the story before. I, I wrote Limitless in about six weeks and people are like, holy cats, how'd you write a book in six weeks? And I'm like, yeah, I wrote it in six weeks, but it took me 25 years and six weeks to come up with it. (laughs) I thought about it for 25 years before those six weeks. Oh, we are the same. Well, I want to open the microphone up. We have Karen up here on stage. Karen Cooks, my friend, uh, just hit that unmute monkey down at the bottom of your screen and uh, you will have the stage. Karen, go. Oh, my God. Am I on? Is this thing on? Is it working? Yeah. Hi, caller. Go ahead. Testing. One, two, three. Testing. One, two, three. Check. Check. Uh, Hi. Yay. Yay for premiere episode. So enjoying this. Uh, Laura, many high fives to you. I've known Scott for a long time, but uh, happy to be introduced to you through through this amazing format. I much prefer it to the other one. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, But so I wanted to quickly uh, remark a little bit about imposter syndrome, because I have just gone through, well, here, two steps back. The two steps back is, you know, midlife and you go, I'm burnt out. I'm done. I can't do the thing that I've been doing for one more second, or I'm going to hurt myself and somebody else with bad words not physically, but with bad words. And you take a step back if you have life skills. You just know that it's time to do that. So in so then the next step was, well, what am I going to do about that? And, you know, I wrestled for a long time and I had uh, a couple of, I had two very specific directions that I wanted to go in. And I looked at all of them through some synchronicity, some luck, some, uh, you know, observing my world. I decided on one track, which was to, 
fill in some knowledge gaps, codify some knowledge, um, and launch a new chapter. I mean, fully commit to um, a next chapter in philanthropy in the nonprofit sector with a master's degree. Okay, great. So I had friends who said to me, oh my God, it feels like you made this decision in one flat second. I said, come on, you guys, you saw me serenely like the duck on the placid lake who just looks calm and collected and underneath the flippers are going 10,000 miles a minute. Right. And, and so finally I just made a decision about which direction to go. So it, it, it seemed to me that the power truly was just in making the decision. And I had been at a crossroads like that before. So the decision making is always the hardest part. You make the decision, you commit, which I did for two years, completed that cycle in a pandemic with a dying dog and aging parents and all the things that life throws at you. And then here I am after running, after making uh, the shift, making the decision, completing the program. And now here I am ready to leap into the next chapter fully. And guess what hits? Imposter syndrome. Oh, my God. What WTF is wrong with me? Now is not the time, Karen. <laughs> I say, is that is that the question? What is wrong with you? I don't think I've that ever gotten that. WTF, <laughs> what is wrong with me? Like that imposter syndrome. So there's the part of me that that, um, you know, again, is practiced at at the faking it part, not the fake it till you make it, but just the call up your confidence in whatever ways you need to do. I mean, listen, I'm a girl who reached out to David Bowie at one point said, can you give me a quarter of a million dollars? And he did. And I didn't even know him, you know, so, um, okay. So, so now that. remind me why, if you're somebody who could call David Bowie, extract a quarter million dollars from him, <laughs> why you have, why, why you feel like an imposter? Uh, you know, I think maybe, and you know, maybe I'm using the wrong words. It's those are the ones that we're talking about here a little bit and the ones that I've been, um, playing in my head prior to this discussion. But I think it, I think it boils down to, um, a fear of that depth and breadth of mature experience going out into the world and saying, give me, give me the job that I want. Because I'm not the youngster anymore. I think right. That's, but that means right. you bring the, experience and wisdom and I larger know. networks, right? Right. Right. So let me ask you this. If you were in the hiring chair and you looked at your resume in the pile, what would you think? Um, I think she was interesting. It's just, as I said, she has this, uh, she does not have a linear path and that actually might be really great for us. Uh, she brings a lot of different perspectives to the table, uh, and not just from years traveled around the sun, but, um, from putting herself in different and varied experiences. Okay. And she's so, a lifelong learner and she just did this huge master's lift. Okay. So she that put her money where her mouth was. Okay. So why so maybe I'm not you? so terrible? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there you go. So here's the thing. I I I have a lot of issues with imposter syndrome. Uh, the, the not issues like I have personal issues with it. Like I have like 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 uh, diatribe screed issues with imposter syndrome. And here's why: because somebody at some point named this thing a syndrome, which mm -hmm. of course then you're like, well, there must be something wrong with me. I have a syndrome, right? I'm sick. 
like I have an imposter syndrome. They must be a cream for that. But the truth is that you are feeling like an imposter because you are trying to get into a place you've never been in before. And isn't that awesome? Right. But then we get this other like, oh, you're being really ambitious. Are you sure that you're ready for this? Are you sure that's okay? Are you sure you're not going to upset anybody? Are you sure you're being too big? Are you sure you're not being too loud? Are you sure you're not taking up too much space? And I think we women especially have this problem, right? Like you never hear anybody going, oh, he's so ambitious, right? They're like, oh, look at him. He's an ambitious young man. But women, it's like, she's so ambitious. It's like, it's like a dirty word. So suddenly you're like, I'm on the precipice of something I've never done before. But maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe people aren't going to like me enough. And I don't want to be proud of where I've gotten to and the chances that I've taken and the the, the growth that I force myself to go through because that just feels very ambitious, right? But here's the thing. I'm going to ask you this question, Karen. Would yeah. having more platform, more leverage, more letters behind your name, more access to raise more money from more people on, on behalf of the causes that you love and the, and the people who you hold dear, would having more of those things allow you to show up better for those causes that you love and the people you hold dear? Yeah. Yeah. Then it's not your ambition. It's your responsibility. And yeah. you have done the work to give yourself the background, the knowledge, the, the, the certificate and the expertise to be able to be in that place to do it. And if you don't go and do it, you're actually stealing from those causes and those people because you have the ability to do it. Well, you know, that's really interesting. I like the way you framed it because um, it's not unlike how I framed the entire decision to begin with. Right. Like it's that old uh, Anais Nen, um, you know, phrase of, you know, the time to remain tight in the bud. You know, the one I'm talking about, that phrase. I do not. Oh, um, well, okay. Now, because I'm on the stage, I can't call it up exactly. But <laughs> the idea being that you can't remain tight in that bud anymore. You just have to expand in order to fulfill your and, um, and by extension, your community and the world's destiny. That's really right. what it is. Absolutely. And, like, what's and the that is what that we're happens? here for. No, that's what we're here for. So in my opinion, so that's what we're here for. You go and you do it. So I'm really not uh, as big of a hot mess as I just sort of portrayed myself to be. But talking through it reminds me that I'm not. So thank yeah. you. And you just solved your own problem and answered your own question. So clearly you're not that much of a hot mess. No. <laughs> Scott, am I that much of a hot mess? I you love that. Me. No, you're, you're fantastic. <laughs> Anyone who can blackmail David Bowie is okay with me. <laughs> I have a story for strive. To be imposters, we should all strive to be imposters because isn't it incredible? Like, first of all, I good for you for pushing yourself to a place that you didn't know you could get to, and second of all, like, I love that. Like, that's the moment in time where you figure out what you're really made of. Like, what can you actually do? How big can you grow? How much can you serve? This is a what an opportunity. Yeah, I, love I think it. there's. I'll, I'll I'll put the mic down, uh, but before I do, I'll say that the there's some element of the fear of failure involved in any, uh, for me anyway, in taking on a new thing. And I, it's interesting because I also had uh, an, an early stage e-commerce business at one point and it had a kind of a social good component baked in. And, you know, then, then there was a recession and that whole plan went away. But I guess where I'm going with that is initially people said to me, cause I was coming out of news and marketing communications and they said, what do you know about e-commerce? And I was like, guess I'll figure it out. Guess I'll figure it out. 
And I did. Right. And that's what we all do. I, I expect that everybody participating in this conversation has had similar experiences. You know, things are figure outable. If you want. Them, yeah. So go do it. So, Karen, what happened? What's what happens if you fail? Not right now. What happens if you're doing this thing and you fail? Uh, oh, well, then there's then there's the real world problems of loss of income and those kinds of things. You know, okay. that's real. So what that's do you do? real stuff. Uh, I don't know. I figure it out. Okay. So yeah, and I'm not being pat. I mean that sincerely. I guess figure it out. Right. So here here here's my advice. I do a lot of speaking to a lot of groups of entrepreneurs and there's always somebody in the back of the room at the very end who's like, I have a question. How long did it take you to write your business plan? And I'm like, I don't know, like give me a cocktail nap and I'll write it right now. I didn't have a business plan. I just yeah. I had an I had an idea and I had righteous indignation around it and I figured it out, right? <laughs> and then they're always like, But well, what would you do if you failed? And so I'll always ask, well, let me ask you this. Like you're sitting here in a group of self, um, self, uh, identified entrepreneurs. What will you do if you fail? Whatever the thing is you want to build. And they always say, I'll figure it out. And it's usually mm -hmm. some combination of like, well, I'll save up enough money before I, before I launch the thing, just in case I have a, 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 a net. Or they'll say like, I'll just go back and get a job at the cubicle. Or they'll say, I'm taking the leave of absence from my work for a certain amount of time. So I know when to like pull the plug. Like there's always a plan. So I'm like, great you know, plan B. So now go yeah. work on plan A because we spend so much time worrying about plan B. We don't actually plan for success. And then we don't build the thing to what we want to build it to be because we're so, we were so worried about failure that we didn't actually plan for success. And, you know, you know, like where, like the, where the sun shines, that's where you see growth. So like if you figure out plan B and then write it down, put it on a piece of paper, tuck it in a drawer and then don't worry about it again. Yeah. Cause you know, yeah. it's there. And, Good reminders. And, you know, that's that's a really interesting point, Laura, because, Karen, you raised the, the idea of fear of failure. But in some cases, it's fear of success that's holding us back because mm. we seem mm -hmm. we're so uncertain about what, what will we do when we get there. Well, Laura just gave you that answer. You'll figure it out just like you right. gave the answer yourself. Yeah. So. Well, high fives to everybody. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll Glad put the you mic drop. Absolutely. And we've got to, uh, oh, by the way, I did find that quote uh, from Anae Nin. Uh, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. That is the one. Thank yeah. you. Fantastic quote. I'm, I'm putting that in my in my quote file now. I love good quotes. And especially I love it. When we, can, when we can relate them to the issues of the day. I know we have a couple more people up here on stage and we've gone over the hour I allotted. Laura, are you okay to stay with us for a little longer? I am. Yes. Thank you for that. We're here with Laura Gassner Otting, author of the book Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life. Gary, welcome to the stage, my friend. Hit that unmute monkey and join us on the microphone. Hello, Scott. Long time. Long Great speaking time. with you, and yeah. thanks first, for doing this. Yeah, this is like and, first time, uh, long time, right? Yes. Uh, last time was when I dropped my son off. So it was all good in Michigan. Um, hi, Laura. Uh, I wanted to just comment on your Serena Williams point. And, yeah, having played cricket at a fairly high level and other sports and sort of looking at sports and what you learn from it for work, you know, I found that the people at the highest point of the sport they played focused on their strengths more than their weaknesses, especially at, once they'd made it. So, you know, you would find a quarterback who, you know, does the slant and the, the, the long pass. They do it a lot, but they're not going to worry about 
the piece that they can't do well. And I found in the banking world, the senior guys who kept getting promoted and moving up managed up very well. They focused on what they did and they basically managed the others to do their weakness. Now, I was always taught that what you don't know, you work at. But that 80-20 rule, probably the 20% you don't know is going to take up 80% of your time. So it's not efficient to do that anyway. And success breeds success. So you focus on what you do well, and that makes it much easier to deliver. And you, you get much more benefit from what you do. So, you know, for me, I think, Listening to what Karen had just said, I think listening to your self-talk, we have to change that self-talk and go with your gut because once you hear something, I want to do that, then you start with the second guessing. And especially if it's not what you do well, it becomes much harder. So it was really just a comment about, you know, yes, practice, the more you practice, the luckier you get, but you got to practice at the right stuff. So it was more comment than a question. Well, I, I, I love it. I love what you brought up, though, about listening to your gut. It's super interesting um, because we've actually learned there's actually science that shows that if you listen to your intuition, you will be luckier. Right. You will do better. And I think Definitely. it's because, you know, our intuition our intuition wants us to go towards the things that we can do, right? We've been evolved to look for safety and to, and to look for the sure thing. And so, so I, I think that, you know, I ask people all the time, like, has there ever been a time when listening to your intuition has resulted in something bad? When you're like, I'm not so sure I want to do that. I'm not so sure she's a good person. I'm not so sure he's a good guy. Um, there, there are those, those, we get those little like spidey sense things. And I have, it has been, very hard for me to find somebody who has said yes to the answer of have you ever been led astray by something you were like, mm, doesn't smell right. You know, I think the answer to that, though, interestingly enough, is if you ask that a person 30 years ago, and I'm going to say, let's say 30 years, maybe before the Internet, you probably would have found a bunch of them. But I think like Google and like the Web, it gives us the opportunity to fail instantly. That's what's so amazing about the time we live in. You have to jump. You have to get off the porch. Because once you do, if you fail, you can pivot and change immediately or work it out. And, you know, look at Google. They're in beta. They're always adjusting what they're doing. But if you don't try you're going to get left behind, especially with how quickly things are evolving. Yeah, I'll give I'll give you a quote because I know Scott loves quotes. So I'm going to give you a quote. You know, I think a lot of us are afraid to fail because we're afraid that people are going to watch us, right? Like because of Google, because of the Internet, you can fail so spectacularly and so publicly. But one of my favorite quotes from Eleanor Roosevelt, and it's hard, it's like picking your favorite child. There's so many good ones, um, is this, we'd worry much less about, what other people thought about us if we realized how seldomly they did, right? People just, they're not paying that much attention to us. So we can fail and we can fail quickly and we can learn that goes back to, you know, my, one of my, my tena hunger, weight, tenacity, speed, and grit, just the speed of between failure to fix is what makes us remarkable more than our willingness to fail or willingness to try new things. It's the, it's the speed at which we can learn, 
from that. And I think, you know, some of that, going back to the, the earlier point about Serena, is just coming face to face with your own hubris about whether or not your success was caused by experience, by training, by knowledge, by purpose, by intent, or whether you just got lucky. Like, can you recreate it? And that's how you know you've really got it. Yeah. Uh, I, for Scott, and it's my last one. I'll drop the mic. Um, I, lo- I know he likes his history. If you look at Abram Lincoln, he failed at every thing, single thing he did before he won, whether it was, you know, every election, every business, even the presidency, he, he lost the election than he won it. And you, you got to learn from your failures. You learn more from failure than you do from success. And you have to be open to that. Uh, thank uh, you, Scott. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Gary. Great, great comments. Great quote. Uh, and yeah, Abraham Lincoln, great example. Someone who made his own luck based off of his failures. He stayed up well past his roommates uh, at his law firm when he, when he, he went off to uh, the, the big city to join a law firm. He would read throughout the evening. When everyone else was sleeping, he would educate himself, he, largely because he had a poor upbringing. But he went out of his way to seek out more knowledge and to become more well-informed. And by the time he achieved the presidency, he just had so much wisdom about him from these collected readings, from what he had seen and experienced. And um, yeah, that, that is partially what uh, drove him to greatness. Scott, one last comment. Sure. Um, I, I ain't no Abraham Lincoln. Okay. But, <laughs> <laughs> but when, when I worked with you guys, mm-hmm. I did that because I didn't know what you guys knew, but I had to work it out. Sure. And you do, and you do what you have to do. That's exactly right. And you were, you were great at it, Gary. You kept up with the best of us. I or, tried in my case, the worst of us. So thanks. No, the best, the best. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Sure. All right. Uh, we are going to move on to one more commenter, questioner, etc. Uh, we have Courtney, who is a has been a participant in my old Sundays with Scott show and uh, my bedtime stories. I've been doing on another platform that are on hiatus right now. Courtney, welcome to the program. The bedtime stories have gone to sleep for a minute. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, um, well, you know, I, I had, uh, you know, something I was going to say, but before I said that, I wanted to uh, reflect back on, on what Carrie said because um, one uh, thing that it brought to mind for me was very interesting, you know, about playing to your strengths because I think, you know, in my job, I see so much opportunity in the things that we could be doing. And so I want to do everything. And sometimes I, you know, take on too much because I, you know, I see, well, man, we could really achieve a, a lot if we were doing this and we we're doing this and we we're doing this. But then if you, if you take on too much, then the things that are really your strengths, you can't play to those well. I think that's that's a perfect illustration of, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing that I thought um, was interesting going back to, uh, you know, um, the whole imposter syndrome thing is it is also interesting. The inverse is there where the people who 
are do not have the expertise and are maybe maybe that's not their field, but they're like also in the workplace and they're chiming in on things that they're, they're not aware of, they don't seem to suffer from the same thing. Like, and so it, it, so, you know, they always seem to have more courage about, you know, speaking out and like, and taking action, even if it's not, you know, on, on something that that's really their thing. And so I just wonder if the imposter syndrome is maybe just a, a symptom of caring so much and being so passionate about what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. I mean, I think it very well could be. I think that if you are more attached to the outcome um, because you care so much, you will be more worried about whether each move you're making is the correct one. So yeah, I could absolutely see that. Um, But I think, you know, I want to go back to the first thing that you were saying about, you know, sort of everything feels important and doing, doing, wanting to do all the things and, and, and tell you about the hardest, but best piece of personal and professional advice I ever got, which was this, you're just not that important. And at the time I was given that advice, which felt very hurtful and harmful and offensive. (laughs) I had young children. I had just started my young business. I was, we were new in a community and I was, you know, on some, some local community volunteer efforts. And I felt like I was pretty important to my business, to my staff, to my clients, to my kids, to my husband, to the, to to the the community uh, committees. And I just, I couldn't understand, like, how do I, how do I say no to something? And I knew that I needed to figure out how to say no, because, you know, despite my efforts, I have yet to be able to bend the space-time continuum. I've tried. <laughs> I've, I've tried everything I possibly can. I've Googled that shit all day long. It's impossible. And Let me know the, if you figure it out. Yeah, I will. But I'm going to give you a better, I'm going to give you a better solution instead, which is to understand that you're not that important. <laughs> and if you are, because there are things in your life, there are people in your life, there are causes in your life, there are clients in your life, there are businesses in your life, there are campaigns or things that you care about where you are that important, where somebody else can't do it for you, where you weren't just chosen because you were the most proximate person or it was just, you know, your boss one day was like, wouldn't it be interesting if, and they just sort of tossed an idea balloon and you like pulled it out of the sky and put it right at the top of your, your to-do list as if it was super important, even if they were just musing about something offhand. There are things in your life where you are that important. So for example, there was a day where I was walking out of my kid's school and um, the head of the PTA came running up to me and she was like, Laura, you're never going to believe what happened. The woman who was running our bake sale tomorrow just had a family emergency. She can't do it. Will you do it? And of course I was like, well, I've recently been thinking I should spend some more time with my kids. I've been so busy trying to build my business that I feel like I've maybe kind of neglected them and I had all this mom guilt. So I was like, okay, like they'll know, they'll see me baking a hundred cupcakes tonight and they'll be like, yay, mom, she's doing a good job momming. And so I said, yes. And I spent the entire night baking cupcakes and screaming at my kids because I was so stressed out about burning the cupcakes and whether or not they were going to taste good or any of that. And then the next day I went to go run the bake sale and there were four other people that this woman had also run up to and been like, would you run it? And so the four of us sat there with like 400 cupcakes for a school of like 80 kids. And um, clearly I wasn't that important. It didn't really matter. And what I should have done is rather than saying, yes, I should have, I should have thought for a moment about like, where are my priorities? What do I want to do? And will this get me there? The truth is I wasn't that important to the bake sale, but I was that important to my son who had just had like an identity shaping run in with a bully that day on the playground. And I missed it. 
because I was so busy trying to be so important to every single person who asked for my time that I wasn't important enough for the one person who needed me that afternoon. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about not do I belong here? Do I not belong here? But is this something that is actually important to me? And am I that important to it? And so you don't have to spend the space time continuum where you, when you figure out where you should actually be spending your time because everything else kind of falls away. I love that. Profound. You know, I asked myself four questions. Number one, will this thing, will, will this thing help me? It's super Machiavellian, but you know, whatever, all charity begins at home. You got to start somewhere. Will this thing help me? Do I see myself on the other side of this project, this client, this meeting, this sucker punch of a bake sale ask this, can I pick your brain for a minute call? Do I see myself getting any closer to my goals than before I started? And if the answer is yes, I do it. Number two, will this thing help someone else, right? So will it help me is the first, you start there. Will it help someone else? If I can actually see a very specific way where this thing will help someone else and I can say yes, then I do. Number three, will it cause me joy? It's not going to help me. It's not going to help someone else, but it's going to be super fun. I'll say yes to that every day of the week. And then the fourth question, this is the most important question, is, is there somebody else who is better suited to make this thing happen? So if it's going to cause me joy, if it's going to help me, if it's going to help someone else, fine non-starter. I say, yes, no worries. But if it's none of those things, and then I'm like, you know what? There are actually more, there are people who are better suited to do this than me. Then my only job in that is to say, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to run the bake sale tomorrow, but let me stand here and help you find three other people who might. Wow. That's, that's fantastic, Laura. And, and it gets right back to what we were talking about in the spirit of consonance with finding control in your life. Those are the things that you can control. You can control whether you say yes or no. You can control how you think about the ask and then the steps you take to help reach that conclusion. Love that. Well, thank you for that, Courtney. We have one more question here. I know I'm, I'm time conscious here. I've gone a little longer than I anticipated talking with uh, Laura Gassner-Otting, author of Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, Live Your Best Life, talking on the topic of luck. Uh, we have Tanner, who is up next. Tanner, I'd like to welcome you to Timeless Leadership. Hey there, Scott. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for being here. How, how'd you How'd you find your way here today? Just saw you in the uh, hallway when I jumped in, and I have some folks that are, I'm connected with who are down there in the audience, and so I found my way in here, and I heard the conversation as I came in talking about imposter syndrome, and it was so oddly timed as I was just literally discussing this elsewhere. Oh, uh, and I wanted to weigh in on it, but now that I'm learning that this is an interview with an author, that may not be appropriate. So I don't want to don't want to do that. Well, no, I mean we're we're happy to have your uh, your perspective up here, and maybe um, maybe Laura's got something to say about it too. Uh, I would certainly be interested in Laura's feedback on the idea. That could be super beneficial. So Laura, yeah, let's mind. hear it. Yeah. I was remarking on how people who are competent at things, who are you know just really good at stuff. We have a tendency to be very critical of ourselves because we know all the pitfalls and the technicalities that can trip us up. It's kind of like when you're a graphic designer, you can see everything wrong with your own graphic design, but nobody else is going to notice it because they don't know. In the landscape of like digital marketing, online marketing, we find a lot of people who are great with the buzzwords and the marketing part of it. And when, and they're not competent, but they've got the buzzwords and they've got the pizzazz and the bravado. 
and the you know the great smile or or, or what have you and and we are you know we're so technical and so competent that when we can when we get in front of those people or when we're competing uh, for ear share or for impact uh, we can actually be intimidated by those people who know way less than us because we don't have that shine and polish and I'm wondering, do you think that, that is, there's any truth to that? And if so, how can people get out from under that? Oh, I think that's such a good question. Such a good question and such a good point because, you know, I think, look, I mean, we live in a world of like social media where you've got these, um, I called them earlier, like hustle porn bros who are standing in front of, you know, jets and Maseratis <laughs> telling you to like, you know, rise and grind and 10 X and all that stuff. And, yeah. you know, and if you <laughs> 12 figure deeper, entrepreneur, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm like, I'm a 17 figure entrepreneur with this one e- easy email hack. Right. It's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> and, and, and I think here's what happens. If you start to dig a little bit deeper, if you start to listen to what they say, if you start to like poke around, what you realize is they're living in like, uh, you know, their mom's basement or they're living in a rental apartment and they're, you know, (laughs) they they have like bill collectors at their door and that Maserati is like they rented it for a day and they they parked it in front of some, you know, random jet that they're being chased (laughs) off the lot for. I mean, it's all nonsense. And, um, and so, you know, I think that there is a tendency uh, I think we as humans tend to be a little lazy sometimes, and we sometimes believe what we see without questioning it. Um, uh, Scott Monty and I have a have a have a dear mutual friend named Scott McCain, and Scott wrote a book called Iconic, which is all about how mm. uh, businesses go from being very good to being iconic, just being so known for this thing they are the gold standard and whatever it is that they're doing. And he has this great uh, term that he uses for people where he says they don't really know what they're talking about; they're just doing book reports. <laughs> Which I think is such a great term. So you have these people who like, they'll tell you, they'll like quote somebody or they'll like use a, a turn of phrase. You know, people are out there talking about like, I'm part of the creator economy and here's my, you know, new coin mm. or whatever. And you're like, what are you, what have you even created? Right? Like it's, 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 it's nonsense. So I think we, we have to look at the people who are just randomly re, um, uh, they're, they're just reiterating they're repeating everything that they heard somebody else say in some other room somewhere else and ask questions, go a little bit deeper. Like, Oh, so you say that you've got, you know, $7 billion businesses. Well, tell me about one of them. What's it called? What did you learn from it? Let's talk about some of those lessons. And what you'll find is that there's no depth there. So I, I think that we can do that. Like if you're feeling like imposter syndrome and you're like, well, all those people seem to know all the big fancy words. Well, you know, talk is cheap. And I think we can spend a lot of time feeling bad about ourselves because we don't have the pizzazz that they have, or we could just play our own game. When I ran my company, I used to go into my clients and I would give, I'd give them presentations and I would like do my thing, my LGO magic, you know, razzle dazzle, all the stuff. <laughs> and I would start to notice that my younger staff who would come with me to these meetings when it was their turn to speak, they would do the same thing. And they were really bad at it. <laughs> They were really bad at it because you know what? They're not me in the Mm. same way that if I tried to be you, I would be terrible at being you. I mean, I can't be Tanner. You can't be LGO. But I think if you are fully 100% you, then that's the most charismatic, compelling thing you can do. And it just feels fake 
to be using all these other terms. Yes, there are certain terms, there are certain words, there's certain lingo, there's certain verbiage in certain businesses, right? So like read those, read their rags, read the industry papers, get to know some of the quote unquote lingo. But like, I was talking to my teenage kids the other day and um, the word baddie came up. I had no idea, but apparently baddie is like, you know, those baddies over there. That's like those hot girls over there. I didn't know what that meant. And I'm like, so should I use that word? And my kids were like, uh, no, mom, that word's not for you. <laughs> like, I would sound like a fool if I were up here being like, I'm a baddie doing hot girl shit, right? Like, that's nonsense. I can't I say think... that and look ridiculous. Like, that's just nuts. Yeah. But you... <laughs> It's funny because like, we have a couple of generations up here, I feel like. And when you said baddie, I heard like the animal baddie as in crazy. That person is baddie. <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, what? The what? What? It was like, is this like bad? Like Michael Jackson? Bad meaning good? Like, what? I don't, I, but, but here's the thing. Let the, let the scam artists and the hustle porn bros and the people who are trying to like dance around with their like fancy smoke and mirrors. Don't look at the right hand. Focus on the left hand. Don't worry about them. They're going to continue to be there. They're going to continue to make noise. And if you focus on the fact that you're not them, you're going to feel like crap about yourself. Or you can go play your game and just absolutely crush that. What I got out of that, Laura, the most is is almost like you're suggesting, especially in the earlier part of what you said, you're suggesting almost the Socratic approach to allowing them to reveal themselves on their own how much shit they're actually full of by asking them these pros, these probing questions that would force them, you know, almost asking them the five whys, but somehow that's different and, and they start to stumble and not be able to keep up. Yeah, or you can just let them go do their thing and not care about them. That's true. But but what some of us feel like we want to protect those who they might, you know, take advantage of. I certainly oh, yes. feel that way. Yes, yes, that is definitely true. So yeah, I think you can ask those questions. But I mean, insofar as it allows you to do what makes you feel good, awesome. Mm. If it's if if you are wasting energy trying to prove like you can be right without mm. actively <laughs> making the other person be wrong. Mm -hmm. Right? So Go ahead and be right. And if you gotta, if you need to reveal them to be wrong in some way to do it, fine. But like, you don't have to grind someone into the dirt in mm. order for them to be dirty. Yeah, it's it's like what Neil deGrasse Tyson says, right, about science. It, even if you don't believe it, it's still true. So even if you're right, you're right. You don't need to necessarily make it known that you're right. Exactly. Uh, Scott, Laura, thanks for entertaining me. Entertaining me, I appreciate it. And I'll go back to the audience and let you wrap things up. Thank you, Tanner. Um, great, great discussion. I'm so glad you were here. So glad you decided to. Uh, let loose, as it were. And, and Laura, uh, based on, <laughs> based on your definition there and the work that I do every week on the Timeless and Timely newsletter, I feel like I am constantly writing book reports, uh, <laughs> reporting back on what people have done throughout history. No, no, so, no, no. There's difference. You read these things oh. and then you alchemize them into ideas that we can use in the current. Whereas other people just like say the thing to look smart and then don't actually figure out how the dots connect. There's a big difference there. There there you go. Very kind of you to say that. And, well, the, the humble part of myself is having a hard time accepting that, but I'll take it. I'll take it. So You should definitely take it. And for the 30 people who are listening, if you do not subscribe to Scott Monty's newsletter, remember in high school when you, like, went up to the smart kid and you were like, I know you did all the reading. Can you tell me what the hell it actually means? Scott Monty is the smart kid 
in English class who allows you to do what I did in English class, which was maybe get a little high and sleep off my liquid lunch that I had on the beach in Miami and still get an A. So I would recommend that people sign up for his Timeless and Timely newsletter. It is required reading for me every week. And thank you very much for that. And and folks, if you want uh, the link to that and if you want to ask other questions or even suggest other guests to be on the show here, uh, go to timeless.zealous.space, timeless.zealous, Z-E-A-L-O-U-S, dot space. Got a, a, a page set up there for today's show, and you can get links to Laura's book, her website. I didn't even mention Laura's newsletter, Truesday. Meditations on Things I Know to be True. I get that every Tuesday. It is a joy to receive Laura's writing in my inbox just to reinforce. And again, it's like a digital dope slap sometimes. And it's uh, just charmingly vulnerable and raw and real. And I take something away from it every single time. So thank you for that, Laura. Well, thank you. I consider that to be quite an honor. Pleasure. Well, any other things uh, that you would like our audience to know before we wrap up here? Um, I just I mean, this is super fun. What a great what a great maiden voyage of the fireside chat we've had. If people are interested in what they heard from me, if they want to know more, I am at Hey LGO on all the socials. Um, and you can go to HeyLGO.com. This is a shortcut to my website. If you are interested in the conversation about consonants and wonder how much calling, connection, contribution, and control you want to have in your life and what you need to do in order to get it, you can ask yourself four very important questions at MyFourQuestions.com. It is a four-question quiz that will um, help you to figure out calling, connection, contribution, and control. And then you will get a, um, the results and you'll get a pretty little PDF that will tell you what you got, what you're missing, and what you need to do today right now to put yourself in consonance so that you can live a limitless life. Fantastic. MyFourQuestions.com. I'll add that to the show notes as well. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for being here. And we will look forward to doing this uh, next Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific. And we'll have another guest talking about something to do with timeless leadership. Let's make our own luck by controlling what we can, finding our calling, creating connections, and determining how we contribute to the world. In other words, by being consonant. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, for you are a leader.